uh, not looking at the totality of uh, the, the farewell ministry of Christ because uh, the, the volume of material is too great and uh, even if I were to try a chapter a night, I think that would leave me wound up in chapter 16 and chapter 17 is, I think, arguably the most famous chapter in the upper room ministry. So what I've done instead is look at themes. On the first uh, night, uh, we looked at... Uh, the, the way the Holy Spirit is um, prominent in the upper room and how he's not depicted to us or brought before us in the typical way that he's brought before us in Scripture. Normally, there's great emphasis laid on the fact that he is the spirit of holiness. That is to say, he promotes holiness and produces holiness and gives us the power to live holy lives. And that is the great... Um, um, purpose of the spirit of holiness or the holy spirit but in the upper room uh, we notice that um the great the great way in which he's brought before us is the successor to christ as christ was the the one who had accompanied them through the three and a half years had guided them had taught them had been at their elbows to uh, instruct and direct and he said that he's going uh, back to heaven uh, that as as you would appreciate the lord's humanity was was time limited and we looked at the theological and practical reasons why humanity must be time-limited. He couldn't keep on, uh, as it were, maturing. And that ministry came to an end just shortly after the cross when, as you know, he was given a body of glory like the body, and glo- body of glory that you and I will one day get, not a body that is not non-corporeal. We could touch it, you could, t- you could handle it, and so on, but nevertheless not subject to the restraints of, of, of an earthly body. And the, Lord, and the Holy Spirit was given in succession to Christ as really uh, that person of the God who, who would enable the gospel to spread outside the confines of that rather small nation called uh, Israel or um, the regions of Galilee and beyond because I, 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 the humanity of Christ, so to speak, placed a constraint on the scope of his ministry. But the Holy Spirit being ubiquitous, being omnipresent, being resident in every true child of God, it was necessary for the Holy Spirit to be given so that there would be globalization of the gospel. And there were a whole crowd of practical reasons why actually, when you think about it, the Comforter uh, would be sent on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the death of Christ, according to prophecy, and he would be the Spirit of Truth. And I, I, I don't know, I don't suppose any of you, nobody ever bothers others taking up my challenges. I don't suppose any of you did try and write down on an A4 sheet of paper how much they remembered of what I said that night. But we did notice that the Holy Spirit miraculously, he shall bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have commanded you. And he shall show you things to come. And we know all that came to pass in John's Gospel. It's astonishing, isn't it? You know, like five chapters of almost continuous prose giving the he, I'll betray my legal background anyway. The ipsissima verba, you know what that is? The ipsissima verba, it's a Latin phrase meaning the actual words. The actual words of Christ. And there's just something really quite extraordinary about all of that. And then we know the book of Revelation likely would be the explanation for the phrase, he shall show you things to come. So that was all the Holy Spirit. We looked at that theme. I am acutely aware that not everybody is doctrinally inclined, and maybe that sort of thing 
is not the sort of thing you maybe wanted to hear in these meetings. So I turned a practical issue last night and we looked at foot washing, the practical ethical consequences of serving one another. Uh, and then we looked at the morsel that was given by Judas to, given by the Lord rather to Judas and the way that that kind of shows how the Lord was never uh, at any point out of control in that whole sequence of events that led up to Calvary. And then we looked at the pruning of the vine, of the true vine in John 15. These, So we turned away from the paraclete and we looked at uh, some of the parabolic teaching of the upper room. Now, I, 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 I do like variety of ministry because I do know there's variety of needs. So we've looked at a person of the Godhead. So we've looked at that sort of core doctrinal truth. We've looked at practical truth. Maybe you're a practical person. Are there any prophetic students here tonight? There's bound to be one or two. And what rings your bell? There's dispensations and uh, the the rider, the, the, uh, those four riders of the apocalypse. My Bible class back home really don't think there's anything other than the book of Revelation in the Bible, which is a bit of a frustration for me because there is more to the Bible than vials, trumpets, and plagues. But... Um, so what I'm going to do this evening is look at prophecy in the upper room. Now, I think this is interesting because, to me, the big lesson that uh, one, one gets by looking at the prophetic truth that the Lord taught in the upper room is that not all prophecy is on uh, what we call back home the long finger. It takes a long time to come around. Mostly, when we think about prophecy, we think, well, you know, when the first prophecy ever uttered... Uh, uh, thy seed shall crush the seed of the serpent. That's the first prophecy of the Bible. It took a long time for that to come to pass. And we mostly think of prophecy as being sort of on the long-term um, scheme of things. But actually, in the upper room, as we're going to see in a minute, like, like minutes passed before something that had been prophetically anticipated eventuated, took place. And that gives the upper room a unique flavour of its own. So what I'm going to do this evening is something a little bit different. I'm not going to read lengthy passages. I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open. And what we're going to do is divide the upper room prophecy up into six, six segments, six buckets. We're going to fill each bucket one by one this evening, and each of those buckets will be labelled. And so if you keep your Bible handy, we're going to look at them, and you'll just we'll read through them as we go. So, so John's Gospel, please, and we'll begin to read in John chapter 13. So John's Gospel, please. Chapter 13. And we'll uh, read verse number 18. Now, bear in mind that this is prophecy. You might not immediately see it as such, but it is prophecy. John 13, <coughs> he's been, of course, um, he's anticipating Judas's uh, actions. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me, quoting from Psalm 41, hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you, before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I 
am he. And down to verse number 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one another, doubting, and so on. And uh, the question is asked by John through Peter, verse 25, Who is it? And verse 26, He it is to whom I shall give the sop. And he gives the sop to Judas. And then he says to Judas, That thou doest do quickly. Now, the Lord Jesus spoke those words. I, According to my rough estimation, about um, well, minutes before Judas left the room, and if you're to be very exact, I, I think it was maybe around about three hours before the Lord Jesus was arrested in the garden. As far as we can detect, it's difficult to do the chronology of the Gospels with accuracy, but as far as we can detect, the Last Supper and the Passover meal that immediately preceded it must have taken place in the evening of um, the evenings of the 13th and the 14th of uh, the, he the Hebrew calendar month Nisan, AD 33, according to traditional reckoning. And it was probably between the hours of 6 and 8 p.m. when this meal was eaten. The Lord Jesus, um, as, as we are told here, um, specifically anticipates and prophesies who it is that would betray him. And moreover, he identifies him in general terms, notice in verse number 18. And what he is doing is saying, this is really, a, if you're familiar with the, Psalm, uh, the Old Testament, this is Ahithophel, a very close confidant and supporter of David, who, you know why Ahithophel betrayed David, don't you? Bathsheba was his granddaughter. So although he'd been a loyal lieutenant of David for many years, I have no doubt at all in my mind that at the back of Ahithophel's mind, there was, there was an issue that he had with a man. And he knew that this man that he served had seduced and disgraced his own granddaughter, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Bathsheba, she's called in some passages in the Old Testament, but Bathsheba is how she's traditionally known. And uh, he knew that his granddaughter had been disgraced by David. So that may well explain the dynamic, the human dynamic of why Ahithophel turned on David, notwithstanding the fact that he was, as David uh, acknowledged him to be, one of his uh, close companions. And he so what the Lord is doing, quoting Psalm 41, is, is saying that somebody from, the, from the, the, the band of people that company with me is going to be the betrayer. And if that were not enough, as you know, we saw yesterday evening that he handed the sop to Judas. Now, why the, the other disciples didn't cotton on is, is an interesting question. All I can say is I don't often cotton on. I mean, all, all I could say in their defense is that it maybe was a noisy evening. Twelve excitable Jews uh, gathered on couches around the Passover meal with other conversations, no doubt, in full flow. 
We don't have any idea of how loudly the Lord Jesus spoke. It's entirely possible that he didn't actually speak very loudly because the person to whom he, he uh, exposed the identity of the traitor was the man immediately to his left, which was John. Peter was further round the circle. And possibly he just spoke to John in ordinary tones, and maybe the others didn't hear. There are all, there's a multitude of possible explanations as to why it is that the disciples didn't immediately uh, erupt in an uproar and, and wrestle Judas to the ground and frog march him out the door and try and protect the Lord. And you would say, well, why didn't they do that? If, if the Lord is saying, this is the man who's going to betray me, you would think they would try and do something about it. Well, they didn't. And in fact, they were in complete confusion as to what was going on. Why John didn't say is an intriguing question, because he definitely knew. And I just wonder whether, in fact, John is the one of them all who had the deepest insight into what was to happen that evening. Bear in mind that had he sought to do anything, he would have stood in the way of divine purpose. And you do wonder whether John, the man of insight and the man of uh, appreciation of the Lord in a way perhaps the others didn't have, worked out exactly what the Lord was saying. But he noticed that the Lord didn't do anything about it. You know, if his eyes were on the Lord and he wasn't willing to act on his own initiative unless the Lord guided him to do it, he would have spotted that the Lord had just told him that Judas, wherever he was in the circle, we don't know, was to be the man. And yet the Lord never lifted a finger. In fact, the very reverse took place. He actually propelled them out of the room. That thou doest. Do quickly. You see, there are sometimes, th we are sometimes in the meetings excitable people. I don't know, I mean, there's a, a mixture of cultures and nationalities here. And, and maybe you temperamentally are quite excitable and quick off the mark, quick to say what you think, quick to act. Just remember in God's things, things that may seem very obvious to you, things that require uh, an instant and uh, uh, immediate response. Sometimes God's mind in the matter is that you just stay, stay where you are and do nothing because we actually don't have God's mind in it. And I, I, I just tender to you as a suggestion, and I don't think it's a fanciful one. I'm pretty confident that John must have heard, must have understood I'm also confident the others others did not understand because they thought Judas was going out for another reason. Query, why did John not do anything? I rather suggest, would suggest to you that John appreciated that if the Lord didn't tell him to do anything, he should just do nothing. Even though his instincts rebelled. Now, that is a very, very valuable print. You know, the assembly is not a place for hasty action. I'm going to uh, uh, have Bible readings in Bushmills in Northern Ireland in about two or three months' time on the last four chapters of 1 Corinthians. And because it's a big deal, and because I'm a busy man, I've begun to prepare already. And one of the things that I've uh, noticed just looking through John uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in particular is that the Corinthian assembly was an incredibly a hyperactive church. You know, they just couldn't sit still. The, the, the advice that the apostle gives to them is, is broadly speaking to the effect that 
there should be an orderliness and a decorum about their assembly gatherings. So he says, let you know, let the prophets speak two or three. And what he's trying to do is, is to curtail the amount of prophetic activity that's going on. He says, he that speaks, speaks in a tongue, an unknown tongue, let him speak two or three and let another interpret. And then, he, and then towards the end of the chapter, you get to some sort of overarching principles for the, the totality of assembly. Like he says this, let all things be done decently and in order. Now that, I know, is a, 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 a verse that can be made to mean almost anything, if you wanted to. Uh, whatever particular hang-up you've got, you can probably hang it on that verse. But it is nevertheless true, before we dispense with it completely, a word to Corinth, which was that there ought to be a decorum and a decency and a civility about assembly gatherings. You'll remember that, won't you? <laughs> you, you, you know that. You don't just treat the assembly gathering as it seems like Corinth treated it as kind of a, a, a Terminal 5 departure lounge where everybody went hither and yonder and there was no control or order to it at all. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to launch off at this point at all because I want to get, make progress, but the point is this, that John learned, it seems to me, that there is oftentimes wisdom in waiting for the Lord to direct, even when you may wish to move. So, I would suggest to you, here is a prophecy that was fulfilled in part in about two minutes after it was uttered, and it was fulfilled in its totality, I would have guessed, four hours after it was uttered. And that's when the Lord Jesus, around about midnight, I think, was arrested in the garden. Right, let's look at prophecy number two. Uh, and that requires us to look again at chapter uh, 13, and this time at verse 33. By the way, there's some difficult verses tonight. So just this evening, Midland Park has been turned into an advanced school of theo theo theological studies. And you all get the diploma when you leave the hall tonight. Because this is uh, kind of difficult stuff. So chapter 13 uh, and this is not now the betrayal being prophesied. I'll just trail what I think. This is the Lord Jesus prophesying those dreadful hours when they couldn't find the body of Christ. You remember they came to the tomb and the body was gone. Okay, so what does the Lord Jesus have to say about that? Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. So he's saying that he's not going to be with them very much longer. Now this is it. Ye shall seek me. Now bear in mind, let's just, this is the advanced school of theological studies bit, right? Put your little mortar board on your head and apply yourself to this text. What must he mean when he says, ye shall seek me? Well, he evidently cannot mean what took place between that moment and the garden because they were with him. They weren't looking for the Lord between there and the garden. They weren't looking for him either when he was arrested because they knew where he was. Right? You know that, don't you? They knew exactly where. He had been arrested and he was in Caiaphas and Annas' palace and then later on he was at Gabbatha. 
They weren't looking for him when he was on the cross. They knew where he was. When did they look for him? You get your diploma if you answer this question right. Well, they looked for him when they found the empty tomb. You know that, didn't they? They, they, they were frantic. They didn't know where, where have they laid the Lord. And now, just again, let's apply the hourglass to this. So when did that prophecy come to pass? Well, if this is on Thursday evening, as I think it is, it never took place on Friday because that's the crucifixion. It never took place on Saturday because that's the Sabbath when he lay in the tomb. This prophecy was fulfilled nearly 72 hours later, or maybe a little bit less than that, when they went to the tomb at the rising of the sun very early on Sunday morning, and of course they found it empty. And they thought they'd stolen the body. You're looking at me perplexed. It's, it's in my Bible, is it not in your Bible? I think it is. It's in your Bible, it really is. They looked for the body and they couldn't find him. So when he says there as he does, ye shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, that's a reference back to a statement he makes in chapter 13 and verse 33, whither I go ye cannot come. So he's moving forward a little bit in time, I think, anticipating the ascension there. But what he is prophesying there is about 60 to 70 hours distant, that um, he was going to be with them a short time and they would seek for him and they would not be able to find him. So he prophesied that frantic search for the body. Of course, it was suspended, that search, when he showed himself alive. Now, the next uh, reference is uh, verse 36. Uh, or perhaps we just we not go there just yet. Let's go to just flip forward a little bit. Um, and let's look at chapter 14. Just do some things a little bit out of order. Chapter 14, and we'll read from verse uh, number 18. Now, this is difficult, so think in caps on, please. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to put something to you that not a lot of Christians know, but I think is absolutely biblical. Do you know when the last time was that this world saw the Savior? Well, I am I'm 100% clear that the last time the world saw Christ was not in resurrection, but was on the cross. You say that's speculation. Well, actually, it's not speculation. Um, if you uh, just uh, bear with me, uh, you will find... Uh, then the, in, I think it's uh, Acts chapter 10. Let's see if I can get my hands in it. Yeah, Acts chapter 10. Let's just look at this where it's made crystal clear. Peter is preaching. Verse 40, him, that is Jesus, God raised up the third day and showed him openly. Now notice this next verse that's interesting. Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose the dead. So you mustn't imagine that after the Lord was resurrected that he was running around everywhere and that people in Jerusalem saw him 
uh, and that the Pharisees saw when Pilate got the shock of his life one morning going into work, that didn't happen. It was the witnesses chosen, says Peter, before. By God. Now that fits the evidence exactly because, you know, 1 Corinthians 15 is the classic chapter of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. We've got to fit it in with the chronology of John's Gospel. But, you know, for example, that he showed himself to James and he showed himself to Peter. And there's one extraordinary uh, post-resurrection appearance. He showed himself to 500 brethren at the one time. He's the greater part of whom are alive to this day. That's a fairly big post-resurrection appearance. That must have been a conference he was at, I think. So... But the world, the, now get this now, the last sight that the world caught of Christ was on the cross. And by the way, as far as the world is concerned, that is still where he is. You see, it's to Christians, folks like you and I that have faith in him, that we, we've not left him there. And we have seen him on resurrection ground. And so it is that he's teaching here, I think, that um, there is this remarkable set of sequence. Yet a little while the world seeth me no more. But now, now, now the AV maybe doesn't make the best job of translating this. He says, yet a little while and the world seeth me no more. So what he's saying is up to the cross. I think the last possible point at which anybody from the world saw Christ was when the body was taken down, because I think they must have had authority from Pilate, and maybe, who knows, some help from the crucifixion party as to the, the taking down of the body of Christ. You could argue that, I think. But as to the taking of the body away to the empty tomb, no unsafe person, I think, saw what happened then. So what he's saying in verse number 18 uh, is um, simply this, uh, that uh, yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye, now, retran, ye will see me. So remember who he's speaking to. He's speaking to not the Christians. It's not his audience. It's, you remember, this is, this is a... This is a, a, a recording of events when he's speaking to tw 11 people. This isn't, John is not speaking to you and I here. Uh, Jesus is not speaking to you and I. He's speaking to the 11. And so he says, to the 11, verse 19, but ye see me, or more accurate, ye will see me, because I live, or rather because I will live, ye shall live also. So, what he's saying, because I will live, that is resurrection, you agree? He says, I'm not going to remain dead. I, I will live. I, I will live again. And what he teaches is just a very basic doctrine. Because I will live, ye will live also. You do know that you're going to rise one day, don't you? After you die, death is not the end. It's the cardinal, I think arguably one of the cardinal truths of Christianity is one of the most extraordinary of them all is that your bodies are going to be raised. You know, we just sit and listen to that kind of stuff these days and don't bat an eyelid. But, you know, that's just, I mean, it's just extraordinary. Now, how do I know that? How, why, why is that? Well, you know, if, if Christ was raised, what really Scripture argues is that there is no reason in principle why we should not be raised. Because death in... His death and resurrection. Death has been confounded. Death is not the final foe. How do I know that? Well, all the evidence shows that it is. 
But no, no, Scripture says there is a glorious exception to it. Christ rose. He's the first fruits. And the point is simply this, Christian, that if he rose, you're going to rise. And that's just the argument that the Lord Jesus is presenting before them here. Because I live, I think strictly speaking, I don't know what you've got out there. There could be a whole mixture of translations floating around here for all I know. But it is possible at least that you have one that translates the way I think it ought to be translated, which ye will see me because I will live, ye shall live also. It's looking forward, it's anticipative of future Event. So I think the AV may not have that entirely right. Now over to chapter 16. Just for another example of that. It's just a little expression. By the way, you know, we sing in the hymns, A little while our Lord shall come. Do you know that that hymn is a complete misapprehension of what the little while is all about? <laughs> the little while of the upper room has got zero to do with the church age. Zero. It's got through the little while between the death of Christ and his resurrection. Right the way through the, the upper room. That is what it has to do with. And of course, it is a very little while. Just a few days. So we've got another example of that. In uh, chapter 16, verse 16. A little while ye shall not see me. Is that true? Is that right? Well, we know that's right because he's taken down from the cross and buried and for a, in a very short time they, he disappears completely from their view. And then he says, and again a little while and you shall see me. Is that true? Well, absolutely it's true because he was in the tomb for a, a, I think if you were to put a stopwatch on it it might not have been for any more than 48 hours you think carefully about Jonah's three days and three nights in that connection, but if he was buried, as I think he was, on Friday evening, that's a bit of Friday, which is Jonah's first day, he was in the tomb for the whole of the Sabbath, a 24-hour period, that's Jonah's, I think, second day, and then he was in uh, the tomb uh, at least until the dawn of the first day of the week, and you know, you'll not believe this, I have tried to reconstruct this. Because I do know that as far as I can, sunrise and sunset doesn't change, yeah? So sunrise and sunset in New Jersey today was exactly the same time as sunrise and sunset when there were just bison here. There were bison in New Jersey, were there? Or maybe not. I don't know. What was, what was there before? It wasn't the plains. What you have? Coal or industry? Or what was there before the settlers came? Cats. Deer. Not bison. Deer. Old deers as well. A few of them. Um, so that's what you've got. You, so when, when, there was no, there was, when there was native Indians roaming this part of the world, wherever there was a you know, a tower block or anything like that. Sunset was exactly the same time. <laughs> and so was sunrise, because the, the stellar clock doesn't speed up or slow down. 
so the world, the universe operates according to preordained principles. So this is what I found out, that the sunrise in Jerusalem, according to my calculations, according to the clock on that morning, would have been at around quarter to seven in the morning. So you're, in, you're talking about a really quite short period of time. That really is the point. And it is, of course, as the Lord says, a little time, a little time ye shall see me, because it's after he rose from the dead that they saw him again, right? Right. Uh, just a quick look for uh, completeness at verse uh, number 19. We'll get that phrase again. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and he said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that? I said, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. So he knows that this is what they're, they just can't understand what he's talking about. And he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. Now, this is really fascinating. Is it just me that finds this interesting? I, I sometimes think about back home, they call people that find things that are interesting that nobody else finds. They call them anoraks. Do they call people anoraks over here? Sorry. Okay, so this doesn't translate too well. I'm an anorak when it comes to these kind of little details. It's the, it just intrigues me because what he's saying here is that they are going to be really upset just in a very short time and they'll weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. Now that is fascinating because we don't get any inkling in the remainder of Scripture about how Annas Caiaphas and the Pharisees reacted to the crucifixion of Christ. They just fade from the scene. But this passage here tells us that that, that, was, that was a great day. They went back to the palace and they toasted one another. Just a little bit like what they'll do in a future day when the two witnesses are slain. They'll give one another presents. And they, the, the world was overjoyed when Christ was crucified. I think the religious word, Pilate, maybe just got on with his work. He says, but ye shall be sorrowful. But this is the point, your sorrow shall be turned to joy. Now, read your Bible carefully. <clears throat> a woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour has come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And what he's talking about there is, I'm not a woman, that will be obvious to you. I'm, and I'm nothing in between either, and that is also obvious to you. But I am told that childbirth is the pain that's most quickly forgotten. So really, really agonizing. But the minute the baby is born, it's kind of forgotten. And that's what he's talking about here. Short-lived pain completely transcended by overwhelming joy. That is the, that is the metaphor of childbirth. So he's not saying that there's a baby being born. He's just saying that these disciples, from being racked with pain, racked with grief, they see the Lord again, and like that whole thing is just in a moment of time is wiped away, like it never happened. And that's the teaching here. Ye now therefore have sorrow, because they're sorrowful that he's going away, John 14, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. So this is the post-resurrection joy of the disciples. Now, I, I think we need to get our heads into the first century AD. You know, we, one of our big problems is we live at a 21 century remove. Can you imagine what it must have been like to see him again? <laughs> you've been with him, you've seen him die on the cross, and then you see him again. 
I, I really don't struggle with why these men were prepared to die for him. Are you prepared to die for him? The grip the resurrection had on their hearts, that they knew that all their hopes and aspirations and longings for this man had come gloriously to pass, and he had, he had risen from the dead. I said, their joy no man taketh from. They couldn't be deprived of the joy that resurrection brought to their lives. So, so we've seen a, an immediate prediction of betrayal taking place in minutes, possibly hours. We've seen a prophecy of um, death and the post-resurrection phase where they're searching for the body and they don't know where he's gone. And then the little while runs its course and they see him again and their lives are just completely revolutionized by seeing the living Lord on uh, the resurrection ground. <coughs> now let's move away from that now to the ascension. Because he does prophesy the ascension. Now we'll look backwards a little bit at chapter 13 now. Now I want, I want to return to chapter 13 for a different purpose, but we'll read a little bit of it. Now verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now. So that's, we'll just break off the reading there. So he's going away, and he's saying, Where I'm going, you can't follow me. That's a bit of a hint, isn't it? So I'm going, and you can't follow me. Now, uh, move over just a little bit, please, to chapter 14. Again, we're going to kind of uh, just take a little bit of the reading. We'll read it from the first verse. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Of course they did. They were monotheistic Jews. But he says, this is the bit. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now, I'm just going to break off here. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, we'll, do, we'll look at the second coming in a minute. But that, I think, is a reference to the ascension. He is going. I don't think that is so much a reference to Calvary, to be absolutely honest. I think that is a reference to his ascension. So he is going to leave the scene. Now, how, how long are we talking for the ascension? Well, you know that, don't you? Forty days. So this is a prophecy now of something that would take place just over a month distant, uh, assuming a month of 30 days. So we're looking at 40 days distance, about a month or so into the future. He is saying, I am going away. And where I'm going, you cannot follow me. And that's a very clear anticipation of um, the ascension of Christ. So maybe 42 days from the point of time at which it is uh, prophesied. So bucket number one is betrayal. Bucket number two, search for the body. Bucket number three, post-resurrection appearance and ascension. Now let's look at, let's have, will we have a look at bucket number four? Why don't we have a look at bucket number four? Uh, now let's read for that purpose 
uh, in chapter number 14. This is something we've read uh, on a previous night. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. Uh, I will not leave you. Now, here's a thing. I don't know what version of the Bible you've got. I've said that before. Again, the EV kind of um, lets us down a little bit here because it says, I will not leave you comfortless. And you might assume from that that what he's meaning by that is that he's been a comfort and he's promising another comforter. That would be wrong because that is not what he's teaching. He's actually, strictly speaking, saying, I will not leave you orphans. It's not the idea of comfort. I'm not, he says, I'm not going to abandon you and leave you like an orphan. So what uh, he is uh, saying there is that he will not leave them on their own. Now let's move over a little bit to chapter uh, uh, 14 again this time. And this time we'll read in verse number uh, 20. Now, just, just underline in your mind this expression, at that day. It's a key expression in the upper room ministry, at that day or in that day. You've got to say, well, what, kind, what day are you talking about, Lord? Well, we'll find out. At that day, ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. And you say, I'm hopelessly confused. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I'll just say that what that means has got to do with union and interdependency and mutual fellowship. He's not saying that we are a member of the Trinity. Sometimes when that expression is used, it's the idea of the Father and me and I and the Father. It's got to do with that mutual interdependence of, of the Trinity one upon another. Now, just, just in case you hadn't noticed, you're not a member of the Trinity. I know maybe sometimes you feel like you are, but you're not. So when it says as it does here um, in uh, verse number 20, it says, ye shall, I am in my Father. Okay, that could be the Trinity. But then it says this, and ye in me. So this is not Trinitarian truth. What is it teaching? It's, got, it's teaching us that there is a day coming, he says, in that day, yet future when he spoke those words, when there would be a relationship of proximity, affection, and fellowship created between the Christian and the Father, equivalent or similar to the, the fellowship and union between the Father and the Son. So this is intimacy. You know, you are there tonight. <laughs> he never even thought of that. But the Lord, what we are taught is one of the characteristics of the New Age dispensation when we edge out of the dispensation of law. In law, its subjects were kept at a distance from Jehovah. In the New Covenant and in the era of the church, you and I are, are part of Christ. And Christ is in us. And he is in the Father, and we are in him. There's this extraordinary proximity of relationship, of affection and mutual dependence that exists between the Father and the Son and we, the church, here on earth. Now, maybe you don't always feel that, but it's one of those positional truths that is it's just true. 
We are united to him. We belong to him. We are part of him. We're like, as we looked at the other, like, like that, that branch in the vine. We, are, uh, we abide in him. And what he is saying is that that lovely proximity, rather than the distance that the law observed, would all come to pass at that day. Now, let's look at another scripture that supports that, and uh, let's look at chapter 16. Now, John chapter 16, uh, verse number uh, 21. Uh, we, we, we've read that, but it's tw verse 23 I really wanted to get at. You notice that expression? Here it is again. Now, again, advanced school of theology time. Have you got your mortarboard handy? This is so. This is kind of. This is kind of tough stuff. Okay. You thought you had it easy yesterday. I did all the practical, simple stuff yesterday. You're going to have to start thinking tonight. And I've decided over the previous two nights that you're well capable of it. Okay. So just apply yourself to this. He uses the expression again, verse number twenty, and in that day, ye shall ask me nothing. Now that, bear in mind, is a change, because up to now they'd be asking him everything. The Lord was at their side. They, if there was a problem, they went to the Lord, and they asked specifically and personally from him. So this is speaking of a day when they would stop going to the Lord personally with their problems and their requests. Things are going to change. So he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask, notice the difference, the Father. So they start asking the Father. And how do they ask the Father? They ask, in my name. So they start approaching not Jesus personally with all their difficulties and dilemmas. He has left the scene and a new relationship established where we pray to the Father. And who do we pray to the Father in whose authority and whose name? We pray in the name of the Son. By the by, that's why you should pray to the Father. I know there is a little... Uh, weakness among us about praying directly to the Son, and there are some encouragements to do that here and there. But the burden of the New Testament, of the epistles, and certainly the burden of this epistle here, what it is teaching is after Pentecost, and the Spirit is given now. So I'm not I'm not a crusty old preacher, age 90 years of age, telling you something that I was reared to believe. Let's just, okay, let's just put that to one side. Let's kill that idea. What I'm trying to teach you is what this book says. And my authority for speaking, speaking these things is exactly what this book says, no more and no less. What does Jesus teach? Listen up, people. Speaking of that future days, he says, ye shall ask the Father in my name. So would that be a good idea, perhaps? Do you think this might be something we should do if he said that that's what we ought to do? So it's a casual sort of thing, you know, to pray directly to Jesus. I'm not saying you're wrong or that you're going to lose your reward at the, at the judgment seat. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it's a lack of intelligence about spiritual things. Because that is the characteristic of the era when he was here. They went to him. When he left the scene, he says something different happened. You start asking the Father, but you do so on the authority and in the acceptability. That's the idea of in the name of Christ. So whatsoever you ask, he will give it to you. Hitherto, 
Have you asked nothing in my name? So his point is, you've not prayed this way before. You never prayed to Jehovah in, in my name before. You always came straight to me. That's not the way you've been behaving. You've not behaved that way up till this point. And looking forward again, he says, Ask and you shall receive, and your, that your joy may be full. Now, if we have any doubt about that, he says it again. Verse 26, notes the expression, at that day. So I, I'll tell you, this is the day of Pentecost. That's what he's speaking about, the, the, the birth of the church. For sure, that's what he's saying. It's not the second coming or anything like that. There's some of the nonsense you sometimes hear. Sorry, that was a bit rude. Um, but this, this is without a shadow of doubt what he is saying. He's speaking about a day when they would start praying to the Father in the name of the Son. And it would be after the Comforter was given. When was that? So after the day of Pentecost, that was at that day, in that day. So he's pointing to, so how far away is he prophesying now? 50 days. So he's edged out another 10. He's gone from 42 in connection with the ascension. And he's added on another week. Is this interesting? How is it just me? <laughs> I think you find it interesting. I, I do read my audience and you're all sort of, your ears are all waggling, which is like an African elephant, which is uh, quite encouraging. But what he's teaching here is that a day is going to come when the nature of the relationship with the Lord is going to change. Just imagine it. You know, you have lived in for three and a half years, didn't know what we were doing next week, didn't know how to handle the Pharisees. You had a simple solution. You asked the Lord. He always knew what to do. But then all of a sudden, he goes. And what do you do? Well, he says, no, you don't keep on asking me. In the church, your relationship is now adjusted. And you pray to the Father in the name of the Son. So you thought all those prayers that the brethren have uttered over the centuries in the prayer meeting and in the, in the morning meeting, we, pray, we, we, we offer praise and thanksgiving in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You thought that was just kind of brethrenism. Didn't you? Wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. It maybe is, but it's got a doctrinal foundation. By the by, a lot of things that happen in the meetings have a doctrinal foundation, and just we've lost sight of them. I would love to come and speak about all the things that we're in, at risk of letting go in this generation because a bunch of people have risen up that don't understand why they do and kind of assume it's just tradition. And actually, it's not just tradition. If you knew enough about your Bible, you'd discover that the reason it's done is for very solid biblical reasons. And we've got a generation that just simply don't know what they are. So, praying to the Father in the name of the Son is biblical. And moreover, expressly taught by the Lord Jesus. So that is bucket number four. And that takes us out to the day of Pentecost. You see, you must be running out of prophecies now. Actually, no, there are a few more to come. So let's look at bucket uh, number five. And uh, that requires us to look at chapter 16. And 
uh, the opening two verses. Verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. That word offended doesn't mean annoyed or put out. It means stumbled or turned aside. Now here is a prophecy speaking to the disciples. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And he says these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Now I know that nearly all of you say, oh I know all about that. That's the persecution of the church in Africa or the persecution of the church in China. That is the persecution of the church. Wrong. <laughs> you know, it's not the persecution that's going on in the 21st century. It must be like the, the persecution of the Roman Catholic Church of the Huguenots in the 16th century. Wrong. If it's not that, it's, it must be the execution of the Apostle Paul. Wrong. <laughs> I'm teasing you. What is it? It's a relatively short wave of persecution chronicled from around about Acts chapter 3 up to about Acts chapter 14 when the men that he was speaking to were persecuted. You say, you're making that up. No, I'm not. How do I know that is true? Notice from whence they're cast out. Synagogues. That tells me that they're Jews. Now, as you know from the Acts of the Apostles, from around about chapter 16 onwards, the gospel kind of moves away from that whole area of influence. The, the power of Judaism begins to wane, and increasingly the Jews have to turn to the Roman authorities to try and suppress the spread of the gospel. And the role of the synagogue begins to fade and um, lose force and effect. But in the early chapters, you remember, you remember the Peter preaching boldly, they arrested them, they put them in chains and commanded them straight that they should not preach. You remember Stephen being stoned? Uh, Acts 7. James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. Uh, one of the apostles. Is it my eyes or are the lights blinking? Am I about to faint or is, uh, is something wrong with the electricity supply? What a relief. Um, so what he's speaking about here is a, a word of prophecy directly to the men that are listening to him, as opposed to speaking prophetically to the church in the 21st century. He's not doing that. And that is perfectly obvious when he makes reference to the fact that it's, I've spoken to you. And here's the other proof of it, that you should not be offended. So he's trying to help these guys to say, you know, it does sometimes help to know that something's going to happen. It's very interesting in the Bible. The Lord Jesus usually doesn't provide detailed prophecy about what people will go through. Ordinarily, the prophecies of the Lord are broad, historic outlines of events in last days. And very, very, very seldom does the Lord Jesus use his omniscience to tell somebody what is going to happen tomorrow or the week after. He never or very rarely does that. The only exception to it that I can think of, apart from this one here, is Peter. Do you remember at the end of John, John's Gospel when he encourages Peter, says that the day will come when 
uh, you know, they will carry thee whither thou wouldest not, and he, this spake he of his death. So he tells Peter he's going to die and going to be bound. And that is a word for Peter. Now, this is a word for the apostles. He's telling them, look, you are going to be persecuted. And he says, it's not just that. They're going to, they're going to throw you out of the city. They're going to be excommunicated. And he said, a day is going to come when actually, this is not the pagans. This is not Nero and Rome. This is somebody thinking he's doing Jehovah service. This is somebody thinking he's serving the one true God of Israel. As opposed to the God of Mars or Zeus or Juno or Asclepius or whatever God you care to name. This is not pagan persecution. This is religious persecution. In, in that short phase of time, immediately after the day of Pentecost. So the prophecy has moved on a little bit further. And now you could probably say with a degree of force that this prophetic oracle is maybe shoving out to a period of one or two years. No more than that, I don't think, would take you up to Acts 14. So that's another bucket. So we've moved on to about two years hence. Where am I going next? <laughs> Well, I'm going to take you to a prophecy that's not yet been fulfilled. And what I want to encourage you to do is remember that all of the prophecies that we've looked at hitherto came to pass. Exactly as he said they would. Hmm? Act, uh, John 14 now, just to complete the reading. We'll read two again. Verse, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. That's where we've got to. But now listen. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Dear Christian, he's coming. And just as sure as Judas left the door that night within moments of the Lord's words being uttered, just as sure as he searched frantically for the body as he told them that they would, just as sure as within a little while he was with them again, just as sure as he went and whither I go ye cannot come, just as sure as the persecution he anticipated broke over the early church, dear child, he is coming again. And that is the prophecy the Lord makes here that is still to find its realization. Notice what he says, And receive you, plural, unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, just a little word of explanation, since we've been a little bit in the anorak mode tonight, okay? Some people read that verse. I don't want to destroy the, the enjoyment that no doubt you have of it, but I just want to encourage you to read it carefully. That is not what happens when you die. What happens when you die is your soul goes to be with the Lord. And 2 Corinthians describes that as the unclothed state. 
You're not yet clothed upon with your body, which is from heaven. You know, um, the Revelation speaks of that during the period of the tribulation. People are martyred and they die. And John very accurately says their souls cried out from beneath the altar because their bodies were still on earth. This is the resurrection. How do I know that? Just one simple statement. I will come again. And he's not yet come. And when he does come, the the more complete teaching of the New Testament 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells me that he will certainly receive us unto himself, but it will be in bodies. Those that are alive and remain, says he in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, they're going to be caught up. They're alive and they remain unto the coming of the Lord, and they'll be caught up, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 says of those that die, that in a moment we'll be changed. In the moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, and the dead in Christ shall rise. And the prophecy that we have just read will come to pass. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So when these words are quoted as they should be quoted over the open grave, you will remember, please, that they anticipate a day of resurrection. And they anticipate a day of rapture, a catching away, when uh, every saint of the church here, and bear in mind, this is I think this is church truth he's teaching in John 14. It's not the, the resurrection of the righteous dead of the patriarchs and the, the, the age of Israel. It's to, it's to disciples, the ones that would form the nucleus of the church. It's to them he is making the promise that he is coming again. And praise God for that.